This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. Power Talk, the leadership dialogue. Okay, and the clock has just gone 10 minutes past the hour of 10 o'clock. It's still me with a croaky voice, but I think you can hear the excitement in my voice. I've been wanting to speak to South Africa's Auditor General. She's so calm, but so forthright in how she delivers the bad news to Parliament and to the country. And because she's so thorough, you're hearing so many people referencing uh, reports of the Auditor General, either to justify one or other position. She insists her position is not political, it's technical. She's technically South Africa's chief accountant, auditor, making sure that all our monies as taxpayers are accounted for and well utilized for the stated intended legal and constitutional purpose. It can't be easy auditing a government of this magnitude across three tiers as well, the municipalities and at the national level. But, uh, you know, she's got her wits about her. Tsagani Maluleka, and she joins us today for this leadership dialogue. Good morning. Good morning. Power FM. Menangyazukutzaka is to be happy. Yes. Kutzaka is to be happy. Kujabula. Alright. So she's multilingual too. <laughs> Showing off so early in the game. <laughs> it's so wonderful uh to see you, uh Zagani. And uh, I think just before we begin all the hard issues, you know, I know you because um, I'll be I'll be uh, upfront. We we grew up together. We were neighbors in the same neighborhood, and our parents knew each other really really well. So I I know Zakani the girl, the 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 young woman in her school uniform. I know that one. Zakani the auditor general is a marvel for me to wonder. We're very proud of what you've achieved, Sakani. But I know how you were raised um, in a really loving, warm home, um, a dad who was very hands-on, a mother who was very gentle, but very, very available um, for all of you. And I think um, it's not a privilege many people have, but I think that's put you in good stead. It really has, Lerato, and thank you for mentioning that. Uh, and I wish many more of us could have it, uh, for it does stand us in good stead, as you say. Mm. Um, fortunately, there are many, even single um, parents that are, are raising families and are doing their utmost to make sure that they mm. give their children the, the the attention, the experience, the opportunities that they deserve. And mm. uh, for that, I think we must applaud them. Okay, and just referencing your parents, your father was a jurist. And your mother was a school teacher and you're an accountant. Like these are three different worlds. Well, not so different. So um, as you know, I adored my father who's late now. And so I wanted to be an attorney just like him because he practiced as an attorney for many years. So I was all set to go and study law at university at the end of matric. And he was the one who said, no, 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 go and do a a commercial degree first and then do your LLB. And I said, why? He said, well, because that's where the opportunities are in the legal field. You'd be better equipped with commercial subjects. So off I went to UCT um, to study commerce, but with the intention of of progressing towards an LLB. 
Um, but there I discovered the accountancy profession. At the end of the year, I did some VAC work with some of the firms. And there I got to learn a few things about the huge racial disparities in the representation of, of black people within the profession of auditors and, and chartered accountants. So that became my cheeky effort to drive transformation, to prove that black people also could qualify as chartered accountants. Um, Not so different from what my father did with his work with the Black Lawyers Association. And as you've noticed, what I then did with with ABASA, which is the Association for Black Accountants, with AWCA, Association for for, uh, Women Chartered Accountants, African Women Chartered Accountants, with my work at SICA as well. Uh, It's really been an expression of what I was taught at home. Um, You've got to strive to be the very best you can be and to um, demonstrate that the color of your skin, that your gender is not a limitation on what you can achieve and you've got to strive for it and you have the potential to do it. Okay, and and, and what do you make of the South African accounting field and discipline? Because Saika just revealed that uh, worldwide, South African accountants are considered number one. So for all intents and purposes, this fraternity of auditors and accountants is regarded as the best in the world. So when you come up with your numbers, we have to trust you. Absolutely. And you should trust us. And we have to keep working hard to deserve that trust from you in how we behave, in the quality of the work that we deliver, in the consistency of of what we we give to you. Okay, but you know, uh, it was about 10 years ago, global credit crisis, how the world got into this quandary was because some of the big four auditing firms had failed to see the bad loan books of a lot of these banks. So the accounting profession has had a lot of um, redemption work mm-hmm. that it's needed to do yes. to, to to regain people's confidence. And I'm talking about a global phenomenon. Mm. You're quite right. And that's because we, we operate in a space of trust. Mm. It's crucial that we continue to be deserving of that trust. And when things go wrong, we best set about fixing them quickly. And that's why I'm pleased that the profession here has been vigilant in sorting out the issues that would have led to the diminishing trust of our brand and of our quality. Um, And and I think we're working our way back um, in this economy, but also globally. And that's important. Okay. You talk about transformation and yet, uh, and I stand to be corrected, there's the big four. Mm-hmm. You know, EY, Deloitte's and the like. Uh, and then there is Susan uh, Saluba, Goboto. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot the third name of it, which is terrible. But we've got one big black auditing firm. And mm-hmm. you would have assumed that by now we'd have quite a few more. What one are the challenges? Hoped. What are the challenges? Yeah, one would have hoped that we, we would have had a few more big firms, indigenous firms that are black owned, that are black run, um, that are South African. Um, some of the challenges relate to the dominance of the big four, not just here, but globally as well. Yeah. Um, some of the challenges relate to access to markets, especially in the private sector, particularly the big listed companies mm. who um, sometimes have operations outside of South Africa, shareholders of, outside of South Africa who that they have a big four auditor, which limits the access for black firms. Um, and, and so what has tended to happen is that the black firms tend to rely a lot more on public sector work from an audit point of view mm. um, and, and find it difficult to, um, to build strong, sustainable portfolios in the private sector. Why is that? Some of it is about trust of brands. Um, some of it is about an unwillingness to, trust, to try something new. 
Um, some of it is about um, time. I, I believe there's also a sense of time around investment in these firms. If you look at a Deloitte, it's a firm of over 100 years old. Okay. Um, and it has taken many years to invest in capability and in the brand, not just here, but globally. Um, in South Africa, we still have, what, 30 years of democracy? The first black CA qualified not so long ago. He's still alive, Prof Ngushu, okay. right? Okay. So, so the, we, we still can count the first and second and third black CA who's a man. We can still count the first, second and third black CA that's okay. a woman. So we're, not, we, we, we're still a young democracy and, and, and the representation of black people in the profession okay. is still relatively new. It'll take time okay. to build firms of, of, of sustainability. And also we've got to work on access to markets. Okay, so I'm hearing you say the fraternity of black CAs is still relatively small and um, we haven't even had generations mm-hmm. thereof. You've counted three generations, okay, and you're in that third yeah. Uh, generation. So to build trust in the industry means we're going to have to beef up the numbers, capacity, and then we're going to have to have black-owned auditing firms that have been tried over and have stood the test of time. But do you think there's a racial element to it? I mean, we can't deny what South Africa is with the structural racism is that somebody looks at you as a black woman and thinks, "Mm -mm, can she really audit us as a multinational as a conglomerate, and those, and that becomes another facet of the trust. Absolutely, it is another facet, and 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 as black people, as women, we have to keep finding every which way to dispel the myth that just because I'm a woman, I might not be able to audit you. Just because I'm black, I'm not able to audit you. Um, the encouraging thing, Lerato, though, is that if we look at the population of CAs, right, mm. and we look at the representation of black people, um, so if I say black, I look at ACI, African Colored and Indian. Um, under 35, black people now make up 50% of the population of CAs. In the country. In the country. Um, not long ago, 20 years ago, we were making up 2% of the entire population of CAs when I started my career. So that's been a big shift. So I believe it's time. Things are changing. If I look at the number of black people that sit for the board exam every year and pass the board exam, it tells you that change is is happening and it's happening fairly rapidly. Uh, The number of black women, black CAs that are partners in in the big established firms and taking on proper um, responsibilities to sign big audits, uh, that's growing. Uh, We might worry about the pace, but if I look at it, I believe wholeheartedly that in the next generation, things will be a lot better. And probably the last, the the following one, we won't be talking about the things we're talking about now. Demographics anymore. Okay. Uh, And one last thing just to do with sort of your mindset, your upbringing. Um, Maybe people don't know that your family owned uh, uh, a general dealership in Soshanguve. You're a Soshasko. (laughs) Um, and, and, and I remember when I said to people, you know, Tsakane and I grew up together. They're like, but you're not from Soshanguve. I was like, yes, I'm from Soweto. She's from Soshanguve, but uh, our worlds coalesced here in, in the burbs. <laughs> That's where our parents got to uh, know each other really well. But your parents had this general dealership. And what people don't know is over school holidays, and we always had those IEB holidays, which were not mainstream. So we always were on holiday end of July, August, when it was freezing. And you'd spend two weeks there working in your dad's shop. Mm. What did that teach you? Work ethic. Because your dad made you earn your pocket money. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, they only started paying me when I was like uh, in, in, in grade 11. Up until then, I earned nothing. Um, but um, it, it taught me a lot of lessons about the dignity of work, about 
um, the importance of a work ethic, um, about service. Because when you work in a, in a shop like that, and I was a cashier for many years, you, you're in a position of service. It taught me about responsibility. We had to reconcile our cash takings at the end of every single day. And every morning, uh, the following morning, you would have to true up. If there was a shortage at your till, you'd have to, you know, be disciplined uh, or make good on it, whatever it was. It taught me about accountability. It taught me about the importance of understanding your role in an operation. It taught me about internal controls organically. So before I even understood auditing, I kind of understood what happens in a retail operation and why we have particular controls. Um, and of course, it also taught me about the importance of family because it was all of our family members who worked in those shops um, over many years. And uh, that became the thing that connected us. I love it. All right, let's switch gears now. And let's get into South Africa and auditing SA Inc. Firstly, terminology. Often people will say this did not comply with the Public Finance Management Act. And then you look at something else and they'll say it doesn't comply with the Municipal Finance Management Act. Mm -hmm. Two different tiers of government, two different protocols. Could you explain them to us? Absolutely. Um, the public finance management system operates on the basis of these acts. So they are very similar in their design. Uh, very similar principles apply. Um, in many ways, they're a mirror of each other. Yeah. It's just that the local government one uh, applies to local government and how municipalities are run and governed. Mm -hmm. The principles are the same. Uh, at the heart of it is a recognition that the people appointed to run that institution are responsible for ensuring that it is well governed, that it performs on its mandate and that it is transparent and accountable. These acts are informed by the provisions of the Constitution, specifically if you look at Section 195, which says that public institutions, all of them, must operate efficiently, effectively on their mandate. They must be transparent and they must be accountable, amongst other things. Um, the, the acts also uh, deal with the procurement aspects which are covered as principles in Section 217 of the Constitution around how public procurement should happen, which is about um, transparency, which is about uh, fairness, which is about equitability um, and e effective use of resources. Right. So those principles are then um, explained better in those acts and then right. in the, the attendant regulations. Okay, so I can say the mere fact that we see uh, regular periodic audits and sometimes they're not glowing, transparency is there. But efficiency doesn't seem to be there. And why is that? If, if they know that they're being managed and watched and all our tax rands and cents are being accounted for, mm -hmm. they can't hide them, even if they may try. But we can see that they're not doing the job well. Why is that? Uh, before I answer that, I want to just highlight the good thing that you talked about, that at least there's transparency. And yeah. I think that's something we must value in our constitutional democracy, that you have the Auditor General auditing every single one of these public institutions every single year. And there's a report that reaches the public, it reaches Parliament, it reaches councils, and that's an important pillar of, of, of transparency. In terms of why it is that non-compliance continues when there have been um, adverse findings, you know, for, for us as an audit office, the problem is not so much the non-compliance as a once-off event in itself. It's about two things. Is there follow-up? 
to ensure that that doesn't happen again. So you fix controls, you train people, you discipline if necessary, and you apply consequences. The issue is that it doesn't happen. And then what, what then transpires is the following year, you have an even worse transgression and a worse um, uh, experience of leakage of public resources. Mm-hmm. So where I'm going with this is that we ought not to worry only about one year's audit outcomes and say, oh, irregular expenditure is X billion rand. This is the level of compliance. What we should be worried about is this sense that this continues year after year. So when you look at an audit report, have due regard to understanding what are the people appointed to run this institution on my behalf? What are they doing around the things that have been found? So so you've just referenced the lack of consequences. And, you know, uh, you have the power to reveal, but you don't have the power to punish. So if each year we're seeing wastage, leakages, uh, irregularities, non-compliance, and then it gets worse, as you say, the year after and the year after, it's a consequence issue. So what would you attribute that to? Three things maybe. One is professionalism in the public sector. Um, If you're a professional and you have a particular role to fulfill and you take it seriously and you know what it is you're supposed to do, when there's an issue that's been raised either by internal audit audit committees, you take pride in your work and you'll fix it so that it doesn't happen again. Professionals don't allow things to fester and continue because they take pride in their work. Um, the second thing is that um, the the law enforcement link between the public sector, the public institution and the problem that's been identified and the referral to law enforcement and law enforcement actually acting on the matter becomes a problem, right? Maybe the third thing is that when reports then end up in parliament, those accounting officers are not being held responsible for effecting consequences because the report doesn't end with that professional, right? It goes to parliament and they've got to be able to say, yes, there was this transaction, uh, uh, this transgression, I did the following about it yeah. and take pride in it. But if they don't follow up, then the, the, the parliamentarian or the oversight committee that's looking at the report must be the ones to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. So as I say, three things which if we deal with will start to change the culture within the public service. It's a triage, is what you've explained to me, is that the Auditor General can only do so much. The accounting officer responsible has some culpability. And where there are serious infringements of law, law enforcement needs to kick in, anti-corruption needs to kick in. Mm -hmm. And if those pillars aren't strong, all we have are just reports that keep telling us that people don't know how to manage our public finances. Okay. Um, In the news headlines just now, you heard a uh, reference to um, the voting that took place in Eteguini as they tried to remove the mayor. That's a political issue. But central to that issue is that Eteguini is just about facing administration. Uh, The finances of this municipality have been so poorly run and, of course, compounded by things like flooding, etc., natural Mm -hmm. disasters. But things are in such dire straits. Uh, that monies have been lost, monies have been wasted, and somebody has to take responsibility for mm. it. And your account, your report was referenced mm. as one of the reasons why they should remove um, the mayor. Similar things happened in Ekuruleni, and Action SA as well was uh, involved in this particular aspect of trying to push for a no-confidence vote, describing the state of affairs in Ekuruleni as dire and worrying, lacking accountability, um, and not fulfilling the requirements of the Public Finance Management Act. So a lot is going on in these big metropolitan 
areas. And what's we are what we are witnessing is the political aspect of it. But the bedrock of it all is the auditing public finance management of it. What is going on in these municipalities and why are so many of them receiving qualified orders? One of the things we, we've understood about the metros, which are big enough in budgets and complexity to attract and to afford high-level skills. So there isn't an issue about skills, which might be the case in smaller municipalities. What we've seen over the last few years is a deterioration in their performance, a deterioration in their levels of transparency and accountability and consequence management. Part of it is instability. So political instability quite often leads to instability at the administration level. We've done the analysis. I've been in the audit office now for about 11 years. And um, about 10 years ago, we started tracking uh, the link between stability and performance, particularly on audit outcomes. But I think it translates even into the performance of the institution on its mandate. We found that there is a strong correlation between stability on the one hand, especially in the area of, man, of uh, city manager, municipal manager and CFO and performance. Now, when you've got instability in those critical layers, it's very difficult to establish processes, practices, culture, discipline, controls that make for performance, that make for transparency and predictable accountability processes. Um, So if there's one thing that um, we would hope gets attention in the journey of professionalizing public administration Mm -hmm. and particularly in the local government sphere. It's about making sure that there's stability at those critical levels. And, uh, you know, we're in the news headlines, but I just, in a sentence, when we talk stability, I mean, we've got the mayor at city council level, the political head of a city, but managing the finances of a city are the city manager and the CFO who are meant to be professionals. And we are told that, to some extent at a local level, the mayor does have input in how the budget is devised for a fiscal year, which is different to how a ministry, for instance, is run. So when we're talking stability, what are we saying? It's the more the mayors change and then they change the city manager, things go all right because then they don't fulfill the budgets. Are we seeing a huge turnover in terms of those administrative professionals, city managers and CFOs because the politicians are changing? If you look at many of our metros, the pace of change on mayors has often led to change in city managers. Um, Even if the CFO stays in place, you'll find that some of the more critical senior management roles also change. Uh, The MMCs change, who are the political heads for different portfolios. The the focus the focus of those different portfolios change, the disciplines around how things are run, the ability to build the technical teams in those portfolios is then compromised. And if you don't have a stable team that you've trained that understands how things must run, your chances of performing even on your specified policy those chances chances diminish. Okay, this is quite revealing. Time for the news. Power talk. The Leadership Dialogue. Yes, and our leader today is none other than the Auditor General of South Africa. I think she's been in this role uh, for two years, three years. Actually, it feels like it was just yesterday. But she's really um, 
rubber-stamped her authority on public finance accounting in the country. You just know if the Auditor General releases a report, it is going to be revealing. It's going to be um, honest, transparent and dependable, which is why even opposition parties like to reference the Auditor General. And I've often wondered how she feels about that, where, you know, her reports are meant to be technical numeric, agnostic to ideology, but they start to be weaponized politically. And I wonder how she feels about that. Uh, it's a question I'm posing to Zagani Manulek in a short while. However, Zolani uh, Zonyana says, oh, Lerat, a true gem and leader. Um, this Auditor General is among the best of supreme uh audit institution leaders worldwide. Her office has also contributed immensely to the ranking of South Africa by international budget partnerships, which I suppose means that whenever South Africa is out there um, in the capital markets looking for money at various levels for corporates, for state-owned enterprises, even for, for the Treasury, um, you know, ratings agencies and others will look at these reports to say, can we believe what the politicians tell us about reforms? Does it actually reflect in the reports of the audit uh, of the Auditor General of the country? And I think that's an important role you play because South Africa finds itself uh, in what people say this fiscal cliff, this mm-hmm. moment of being heavily indebted, not enough revenues coming into the Treasury, having to make every rand stretch. And so some monies have to be borrowed. Others have to be paid back. Some companies have to go and raise their own money using government guarantees, etc. And do people believe that the South African government would make good on those debts? And uh, what do your reports tell the international markets? You know, our reports tell things as they are. They indicate whether or not what is being reported by the people who run our public finances um, can be relied upon, whether that information is relied upon. We, we don't um, judge whether there's good or bad performance. Our job is simply to confirm whether the information presented is reliable to assess performance. Um, and that's quite important because we're independent of the person preparing the information, also independent of the person using the information. Ours is just to independently say, can you actually rely on this, that information? And that's quite important. So you just say the sky is blue. Yeah. Whether you see in it a storm cloud, whether you see the sun rays, that's up to you. The sky is blue. That's all we're telling you. We're, we're telling you that uh, the person you appointed to run particular this particular department um, says to you that they've built 300 houses. We're not going to tell you whether it's good or bad that they've done 300, but we'll tell you whether or not what they are saying is true. Can you rely on their report that says it's 300 houses? Once you know you can rely on that report, then you can have a credible conversation about, well, is it enough given the money we gave you or are you underperforming or are you overperforming? Um, And that's quite important. It allows people to plan better because they know the truth about what it takes to run particular operations and service delivery initiatives within government. It allows people to understand what needs attention 
Um, our reports, as you know, cover matters around financial reports. They deal with performance information, not to judge whether performance is good or not, but to us to us to assess whether the information is credible. They deal with compliance matters. Uh, if you look at the entire report, you really get a good feel for whether the person appointed to run this institution mm-hmm. is doing what they're supposed to do, um, whether there is room for correction, and whether they're being responsive. Okay. And that's crucial. I've just said at times your reports can be weaponized, wittingly or unwittingly. How does that make you feel when, when you see opposition parties, uh, even you know factions within the ruling party, the governing party, pick up a report and say, here's the proof that you're doing well or here's the proof that you are not who you say you are? That's an inevitable part of uh, our reports reach, reaching politi- politicians. Um, My job is to make sure that our reports are characterized by an impartial assessment of the facts, by quality, whether our reports are relevant and that they are timely, they cover the critical aspects that help people use them as they need to, um, and and whether our reports are fair. How other people then choose to use them becomes a different matter altogether. Yeah, but I'm just saying, you know, in a highly... um I'm not going to say, well, what's the word? In a highly inflamed or energetic political environment, rigorous, I think is the word, mm. um, and you just hear your name bandied about, does it ever make you feel uncomfortable and think, no, don't use my name in that <laughs> sentence? I think if people <laughs> misinterpret the report, then my duty is to make sure they understand the report okay. at least. Um, so if, if if the information comes back and I, understand, I get a sense that somebody is completely misunderstood or is completely misrepresenting what the report says, then I've got to say something. But short of that, well, you know, the reports are out there for people to read for themselves. And we work hard, Lerato, to make sure our reports are accessible, not just in terms of being able to find it, but also being able to understand it, especially for people who are not auditors. All right, let's talk about uh, the quality of performance. Whilst you might not rate uh, capability and aptitude, your reports are revealing. And this is what they reveal. State-owned enterprises, right? There's quite a lot of them. And we usually just talk about some of the big ones, the SAAs, uh, the Donnells, the Transnets, the ESCOM, but there's many. And in your reports, you found that, um, I think you've audited about 418, and you found that uh, only 147 were unqualified. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's 35%. That means... The majority of state-owned enterprises in this country, big and small, regional and otherwise, have qualified audits. And yet we understand that state-owned enterprises are supposed to be the vehicles through which a developmental state uh, will meet its objectives. They are supposed to be the vehicles through which water is provided, electricity uh, is transmitted on a grid, through which, um, you know, Uh, Social services will be delivered to people and close on to 65% of those institutions can't manage themselves well. And they should be able to do so because they've, again, like the metros, have the budgets and the complexity to attract good talent. Um, What we see is that there tends to be very poor governance in these institutions. And that translates into the type of management teams that are there, that translates into how they are given space or not to do their work, how they are held accountable or not in terms of whether or not they're doing their work. 
And that governance problem translates then into performance issues. And those performance issues over time have a dire impact on the economy and ultimately on the lived experiences of you and I. Um, These institutions operate under the very same uh, regime in terms of the Public Finance Management Act for their public institutions. And the law is quite clear. They're required to be governed well. They're required to perform on their mandate and they're required to be held accountable when, okay. they, when they fail to do when so. When we talk governance, what are we talking about here? So if we just take the issue of ESCOM, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, for the longest time, whatever we may think of Andre de Reuter, he did not have a core board. So I think the board is supposed to have about 15 or so members. There were only about seven. So at no point in time were there enough members on a board to either vote one or or another way on a strategy for the organization and to sign off on uh, big checks that would uh, lead to uh, transforming one or other uh, um, asset within the, the, the ESCOM portfolio. Now, governance means you can't have that. You can't be operating without the oversight of a board. You can't be operating without internal auditors in the organization. You have to have financial reporting to your shareholders. Why are these issues tricky for South African entities to understand? You know, the the work that the... um the commission that the Chief Justice led on on, 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 on um, state capture um, revealed a few problems around why there's such bad instability in those boards um, and why those boards tend to be dysfunctional. And much like what we, I was saying around the municipalities, when you've got the oversight mechanism um, in any institution being so dysfunctional or in, unstable, it translates into instability at key operational levels. And that institution is then rendered rudderless. They actually can't operate. The strategies aren't clear. Um, the, the norms are not able to be established. And then you can't hold anybody a- a- accountable. Um, and the institution becomes weaker and weaker over time. If you look at the audit outcomes of ESCOM, um, they've continued to deteriorate. If you look at the financial performance, yeah. it's continued to deteriorate. And we all pay a heavy price for that. So we do need to sort out the governance in these institutions. And Again, going back to these terminologies. So governance is how um, the CEO, as the chief accounting officer, in a public setting, reporting to a manager with a board that is supposed to filtrate the conversation between the executive and the government. When those systems, when those channels are not clear, then you don't have proper management and you can't follow through strategy and you can't sign off on things and we saw it at the SABC. SABC didn't even have a board for close on to a year and that and now here they are yeah. in the situation that they're in. So governance matters. But often when we use the word governance in the public domain, even in the media, I think people use the word interchangeably with corruption and it's not always the same thing. So help us understand the terminologies because the Auditor General will talk about um Irregular expenditure, mm-hmm. wastage, fraud as three separate categories. We may use the words loosely, but they are very different things. Mm-hmm. Please explain. Absolutely. So irregular expenditure relates to transactions where there's been procurement or spend that was done outside of the provisions of the law. That's a problem because those laws are put in place to meet a particular policy objective. And so if those laws are not being applied properly, 
you then don't realize your your objectives around development. Um, so it doesn't mean that the money is gone. Is, is lost, but it does mean something has gone wrong. Maybe you didn't apply proper BE standards, but then there's a policy imperative that says bring black business in. Maybe you didn't uh, comply with the law saying um, ensure that there's local content. Why is that law there? So that you can safeguard your industrial base. And if that law is being flouted regularly, you start to diminish your industrial base, right? right? So so you may still be getting whatever you're buying from China or from where for elsewhere and, and disobeying the local content provision. Um, still, the, you still get the quality good at the right price, but you've not made your policy imperative. So it doesn't mean you've lost money necessarily. It does mean that something has gone wrong. And you have to go investigate it and see if there's loss. Okay, so that's irregular. You, that's irregular. Expenditure is you've got a BEE, for instance, and you opted this. I'm going to hire a renowned advertising agency. I'm yes. not going for a black mm-hmm. agency. Mm-hmm. So you've still got your communications thing done, but irregularly, mm-hmm. not complying with what the laws yes. require on yeah. equity and representation. Absolutely. Okay. Next. Okay. Then we say um, wastage. That's when you've overpaid for something. Sometimes that wastage happens because you've run an irregular process. Maybe you're supposed to have a um, a, a BE imperative that says uh, your your considerations for price vis-a-vis empowerment must be this sort of ratio, and then you don't apply that, and you end up overpaying for that good. Um, so it's irregular in that you didn't comply with the policy, but then you also still have wastage because you overpay, overpaid. Um, sometimes um, wastage happens because um, you pay for something and it's of poor quality, but you still pay full price and then you can't use it. Such as some of these projects we end up having to to report on where there's a project granted to Zagani and, and co, who, who's an accountant, knows nothing about building. She then tries to go and build houses and then those houses don't stand. And then you've paid her and she's moved on. It was irregular to appoint somebody who doesn't have the capability to do this. But then there's also wastage. And Two of course, things. there's also harm to the public because yeah. they don't get what it is they were supposed to get. Okay. Then why do we call that fraud? Well, perhaps there was fraud in that Zagani misrepresented her credentials. <laughs> or the person evaluating Zagani's bid uh, decided to act in a way that's unpredictable and, and awarded her the bid. Perhaps that's the fraudulent part of it, but you have to investigate before you can determine okay. if there was fraud. Um, so these things are all undesirable. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we must accept. Um, irregular expenditure is not a crime in and of itself, but you have to check and understand. I'll give you an example. You know those transactions where there were trains bought at Prasa mm-hmm. that ended up being Too inappropriate for, for our own infrastructure? We flagged that as an irregular expenditure. We said the contract was irregular. Um, and there were a number of different issues that led to the irregularity. The, the setting up of that SPV, uh, the prepayment that was made. I mean, that was all irregular, right? Um, the the um, uh, matters around local content were not complied with, etc. One could have easily said, well, it's just irregular expenditure. There's no corruption. Well, following the investigations that needed to happen, having flagged that there's irregularity, we've learned that there was a lot of problems with those transactions. Okay. And so that's what you look at across. And the SPV is a special purpose vehicle for financing the thing. You shouldn't be, even be having that in a, in, a, in, a, in a public entity. There's a lot that goes on 
in the work that you do. Do you ever sleep? <laughs> I have the benefit of an incredibly strong team. Uh, I get to work with 3,600 members of Team AGSA, capable individuals, the most patriotic and passionate team you could ever hope for. Uh, many of them audit professionals. In fact, we have over 800 CAs that work with us on a full-time basis, oh. about 500 registered government auditors who belong to a different designation. Uh, we have a number of information systems auditors, a number of other experts um, in, in investigations, um, experts in the medical field, yeah. engineers who help us assess bridges and homes and houses and, and infrastructure, <laughs> as well as, as other experts. So our team um, works in different parts of the country. Much of the work is done, all of the work actually is done by them. I just get the privilege of working with them and leading this team. Um, we have obviously the standards, the processes that underpin what is done. But I, I am in the fortunate position of working with this incredible team. Oh, and I love that a leader who uh, gives credit words to you. If you could put on your headphones, I think uh, Tabo and a few others will want to talk to you. Tabo, good morning. Morning, guys. How are you? Fine, thank you. Go ahead. I'm good. You know, uh, when it comes to the issue of corruption, I think if we think that the coalition government would be able to eradicate corruption, we are dead wrong. Because of these parties were formed from the ANC, you know. And then I think that the power sharing now has given them some, 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 some little bit of power to, to be able, you know, mm -hmm. to, to into this position. For, for example, the MMC of EFF. We have EFF speaking about corruption, but now one of their own, there are allegations there that he doesn't want to submit his financial record, and then the allegations that he has used that money for his own, own benefit. But the EFF is silent about this issue. So. If we think that the coalition government is going to, 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 to eradicate corruption, we are mm -hmm. just playing ourselves. That's why we had the uh, late SG, you know, Mama, uh, 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 being threatened with death. Because of these people, they're so comfortable with corruption. That, that is why now they're going strong and then they're okay. even using guns in right. order to, 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 to continue with the corruption that okay. they have. All right, thanks for that input. I mean, I think this goes to that point, again we were making, is that yours is not to comment on party politics, what happens, faction fightings, who believes what, who has a leftist or a right-wing ideology. All you want to know is, was it public money? Was it used for the intended purpose? And if not, why not? And then the rest of us will need to do with that information what we will. Absolutely. But corruption is an important one because I think South Africa, we're starting to use the word interchangeably with political instability, with, um, you know, or associated with people we may not like in the public domain. And I wonder if everything in terms of the terminology we've used today is tantamount to corruption, whether we're talking irregularities, whether we're talking wasteful expenditure, whether we're talking fraudulent representation of claims. Um, do you get a sense that this is a very corrupt country? When I look at the Corruption Perception Index, South Africa is at f position 40. Uh, South Africa has been rated 43. And most countries 
have a scoring below 50, which is not a good number. Mm. I think there's a lot of work that we have to do. We've had reports coming from different directions over the last few years that tell us that there's significant work to be done to change the culture within which the public sector in South Africa operates. Mm. Uh, It also tells us we have to urgently build the capability of the different institutions uh, that have to operate in the mandate of anti-corruption and law enforcement. It tells us also that we've also got to, as citizens, be less tolerant of corruption uh, in our smaller communities, but also in the bigger picture. Uh, We've got to stop idolizing and celebrating people whom we know are benefiting uh, inappropriately out of the the public sector. Uh, And we've got to start calling it out and behaving differently when we interact with the public sector. And I think that's a great way to leave this conversation, which is from where you stand, your vantage point, how do we strengthen institutions? So lawyers will say we have to make sure that our laws, all of them in application, comply with the Constitution, the spirit and the letter of the Constitution. Um, those in healthcare will say we need to make sure that we're doing the best in terms of primary health care, giving people what is constitutionally their right in terms of health care. So in terms of auditing and public finance management, how do we strengthen institutions and what are the institutions that need strengthening? We've got to strengthen the professionalization in the public service. The things on financial management translate into every other aspect of how that institution runs. Have professionals in place who have the technical expertise, the management expertise, give them space to operate without interference, undue interference, and then hold them accountable. There must be consequences when things go wrong. Some of the consequences would be political. Some of it would be through the law enforcement agencies, but you have to have accountability and consequence management when things go wrong. The Auditor General of the Republic of South Africa, Tsagani Maluleka. It's been a leadership dialogue that's been very, very enlightening, uh, giving credit to all of the staff of the Auditor General's office as being really the backbone of that community. One leadership principle that appeals most to you? Compassion. Isn't she just lovable? I told you I'm biased. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.